Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 16. We've got three big Bible questions in one today. What is circumcision? Why is circumcision? And practically speaking, should I circumcise my son? Bible passages we're going to go through today are Genesis 17, Nehemiah chapter 6, Matthew 16, and Acts chapter 16. I do want to give a couple of shout-outs to open up the show. As I was just now beginning to record, I got a message from my friend Dr. Mackey all the way in Dundee, Scotland, the home of Robert Murray McShane, who is the one that came up with our Bible reading plan uh, almost 200 years ago. So thank you, Dr. Mackey, for your encouraging words. He tells me that uh, one of the women in his wife's small group all the way over there in Scotland is really enjoying the podcast, and his wife, Eleanor, is going to start listening as well. And that just kind of shows how word of mouth does. Um, so I would appreciate it so much if you share the word on the podcast. It's one way we can uh, get a lot of people involved in daily Bible reading, and that's really the whole goal of this show. It's not about making people read the Bible uh, all the way through in a year, although that's fantastic. We definitely want that to happen. But the key thing is daily Bible reading. I don't want you to get overwhelmed and say, oh my gosh, I'm two days behind. I'll never catch up. I'm just going to stop. Don't do that. You can miss those two days. It's it's okay. There's grace for that. His mercies are new every morning. We're encouraging daily Bible reading, whether you pick this up in January or April or late summer or December 22nd, whatever. Daily Bible reading is the whole goal of this podcast and sharing this with your friends by word of mouth or social media and, and all of that kind of good stuff is much, much, much appreciated. Also want to give a shout out to Scott Foster's wife. I don't know her name, but she posted something really positively about the show to some of her friends in a Bible study. And Scott, I know from a previous podcast I was on years ago. And uh, shout out to you, Scott. Thank you for sharing the podcast with your wife. I'm glad it has been an encouragement to her. And like I said, sharing it person to person, getting the word out. It's a great way to spread a hopeful passion for the word of God. So I promised you yesterday, after the Bible question on the Jerusalem Council on Acts chapter 15, that we would one day pick back up the issue of circumcision. Well, your patience has been rewarded and your long times of waiting has come to an end. Today is the day that we tackle the painful issue of circumcision. Well, painful for some of us. I'll go ahead and let you know also that this is not the last time we will discuss the issue. It's going to come up quite a bit in the Old and the New Testament, but this will be an introduction. All right, before we go a whole lot further, let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful 
and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell down, and he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So Abraham took his son Ishmael, and those born in his household or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was thirteen year old, years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that same day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all of the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Allow me to begin and sum this up in every discussion we have about circumcision with a fairly amusing little ditty that you should remember as we talk about this. Circumcision of the heart is the heart of the matter in circumcision. I'll say that again because maybe it's not as clear as I think it is. Circumcision of the heart is the heart of the matter in circumcision. And that's a shout out to my friend and fellow uh, Valley Baptist Church and Salinas Church member Dan Blair, who has often discoursed with me on the subject of the covenant of Abraham and on the circumcision of the heart, which we'll unpack here in a minute. Now, one of my favorite preachers in the 90s, 
told the story of Joshua chapter 5 one time in a sermon. And if you don't remember what down uh, went down in Joshua chapter 5, uh, let me see if I can summarize it for you. So Joshua and the military of men of Israel, they've just crossed over the Jordan River miraculously into the promised land. And they are preparing to battle many different tribes and nations for that land. Before any blow is delivered, God comes to Joshua to tell him to circumcise all of the fighting men, the adult fighting men, the full-grown fighting men of Israel. Now, the way this British preacher told the story is uh, both poignant and humorous, and he sort of envisions Joshua telling of all the soldiers that they would have to be circumcised, and the groans and questions that must have ensued from all of those fully grown and developed men. One bloke in particular asked Joshua, what does God want with my foreskin? Now, I'm quite aware that the Israelites didn't have British accents, but every time I think about circumcision, I think of that poor British Israelite soldier asking that question, and I sympathize with him. Now, I need to pause and remind you that this episode, as is the title says, is slightly PG, parental guidance suggested, mainly because I um have to use the P word here, uh, I, but only one time, I think. Some of you may not really fully know what circumcision is, and therefore the story from Joshua 5, where all the men have to be circumcised before they fight a battle, is not particularly funny or strange or painful to you. So, what is circumcision exactly? Well, I'm glad you asked. Actually, that is a total lie. I'm I, I'm I'm factually kind of embarrassed to talk about it, but here it is. And I think what I'm going to do, instead of just telling you off the top of my head, I'm going to read a definition from medicine.net uh, because uh, that'll just be easier for me. So circumcision, what is it? It is surgery that removes the foreskin or the loose tissue covering the rounded part at the end of the penis. Circumcision may be performed for religious, cultural, or health reasons. Newborn circumcision diminishes the risk for cancer in that area and lowers the risk for cancer of the cervix in sexual partners. It also decreases the risk of urinary tract infections and lowers the risk of sexually transmitted diseases, especially HIV. The Latin prefix circum means around or about. Circumcision is then literally a cutting around. Circumcision dates back to prehistoric times. It's one of the oldest surgical operations known to have been performed by ancient people. Now, me reading that might get the anti-circumcision crowd after me. Please don't. Medicine.net may be right or wrong about the health benefits of that practice. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But that's not what we're talking about today. So if you have a beef with them, just take it up with them. Now, that we know the what of circumcision, we get to really what is the two most important questions for us to consider. Number one, why? Why did God command circumcision? That's a mystifying thing when you think about it. And number two, should baby boys still be circumcised? Maybe you're making that decision. Maybe you're you're pregnant or you have a, a young child and you're really wrestling through that. Or maybe you made that decision in the past and you're wrestling did I, with the question, did I do the right thing? Well, let's start with question number one. Why in the world did God command this strange surgery as the sign of the covenant? Now, that is a phenomenally good question. 
question, one of the best questions of the Bible I've ever heard. And I want to turn to Logos scholar Dr. Michael Heiser because he has the best and most succinct answer to that question that I've ever read. So next uh, little bit, I'm just going to quote him here. And this is what Dr. Heiser says. When God told Abraham to be circumcised, he was past the age of bearing children. Both of them were, you know, well, well up in years. And his wife, Sarah, was incapable of having children. Nevertheless, it would be through Sarah's womb that God would fulfill his promise of innumerable offspring to Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham could only be realized by miraculous intervention. The miraculous nature of Isaac's birth is the key to understanding circumcision as the sign of the covenant. After God made his promise to Abraham... Every male member of Abraham's household was required to be circumcised. Every male and every woman, since the males were all incapacitated for a time, knew that circumcision was connected to God's promise. It probably didn't make any sense, though, until Sarah became pregnant. Everyone in Abraham's household witnessed the miracle of Isaac's birth. From that point on, every male understood why they had been circumcised. Their entire race, all the descendants of Abraham, their very existence began with a miraculous act of God that of opening the womb of Sarah. Every woman was reminded of this when she had sexual relations with her Israelite husband and when her sons were circumcised. Circumcision was a visible, continuous reminder that Israel owed its existence to Yahweh, who created them out of nothing. Now, that's a great answer and a very clear explanation of the value and necessity of circumcision. It was a sign, not visible to everybody, obviously, but visible every single time a new Israelite was conceived. And that demonstrated that it was Yahweh himself that sustained the Israelite people. Hopefully that clears things up a little bit for us, but it doesn't answer our big practical question. Must baby boys and uncircumcised men be circumcised? So let's start with a key verse from yesterday that helped guide us to the answer of our biggest question yet. Must Christians obey the Old Testament commands? Romans 7.66 says this, But now... We've been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Did you catch that? We've been released from the law. Clearly, the Old Testament commanded circumcision for the Jews in no uncertain terms. However, because we are released from the law, according to Romans 7, our big question now is this. What does the New Testament command Christians in this area? So we'll start with Galatians. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel or no good news at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So the question is, well, how are these false teachers confusing the Galatians church and how are they 
perverting the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul gets there eventually in Galatians chapter 5, but let me do read just this little section from Galatians, Galatians 3 on the way. Paul says this in verse 10, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. That's pretty strong. In other words, if you're relying on good works to save you and obedience to the Bible to save you, you must be perfect. If you're not, you're going to be cursed. Well, that's bad news if you're relying on works to save you, but praise be to God, we're not saved by works. Let's get into Galatians 5, where Paul says this, take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated or cut off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Paul is making a a bit of a pun there. If you're trying to be justified by following the Bible, by following the law, by getting circumcised, Paul says that will sever you or cut you off or alienate you from Christ. You will fall away from grace. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly, eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. And then Paul says this in verse 12, and it's pretty shocking to be honest with you. He says, I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. So that's strong. What Paul is saying is, for any man that allows himself to be circumcised in order to be saved, that he is cutting himself off from Christ, and he is signing himself up to be completely under the law's provisions. And Paul says, that's bad. That's falling from grace. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 makes it even more clear in verse 17, where Paul says, Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision doesn't matter, says Paul, and uncircumcision does not matter, says Paul, Keeping God's commands is what matters. So this question for Paul gets to the very heart of the gospel or the good news, which explains why he expressed his wish in the pages of scripture that circumcision demanding false teachers would go ahead and castrate themselves. Was the gospel, was the good news of Jesus faith plus works? You know, considering circumcision is a work, it is a uh, action Was the good news of Jesus faith plus works, or was it faith alone? Is salvation synergistic? In other words, is it our effort plus God's effort working together to save us? Or is salvation monergistic? 
God's effort alone leads to salvation. And the crystal clear answer throughout the New Testament over and over and over again is that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and not by works. Salvation is monergistic. It is the work of God, not us working with God to save ourselves. We were dead in our sins. Dead people cannot save themselves. Salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. It is God who saves and we who are saved. We do not contribute to our salvation and thus circumcision is not salvific. In other words, circumcision doesn't help bring about salvation and neither does any other thing like baptism or whatever. We're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done, not the things we do. Even in the Old Testament, it became clear that the inward inward reality of the heart would be more important than the outward reality of the sign of circumcision. For instance, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, God says, the heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as the does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the people as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God. So what's the command? The command is circumcise your heart. It, It kind of shows us that this is not merely talking about an act of the flesh, but an act that's going to have a difference in your heart, in your inner person. And Paul expands on that powerful idea in the second chapter of Romans, as I talked with my friend Dan about this week. Verse 25, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his lack of circumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and being circumcised. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, Verse 29, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter of the law. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Now, pause right here. Why is this such a big deal? Why are we talking about it today? Uh, it, I know it's a weird thing, particularly if you were not raised in Christianity. But you must understand this for thousands of years, first for the Jews, then for the Christians. This has been a critically important thing. As I explained earlier, it's the sign uh, that that helps us remember and help the Jews in particular remember God's miraculous creation of them as a people through Father Abram and Mother Sarai. 
It's it's important. It was important. I think it's still important today, but it's not salvific. It doesn't bring salvation. It does not have anything to do with salvation. And that gets us to the final question. Is it a sin for you to be circumcised or a sin for, uh, for instance, you're thinking about uh, if you're pregnant or having a son, is it a sin to circumcise your son or not to circumcise your son? And the answer is it's not, unless you are relying on circumcision to somehow secure salvation for yourself or your child, you can be circumcised or you cannot be circumcised. Paul couldn't say it a whole lot clearer in 1 Corinthians 7. Neither one is particularly spiritually important. In other words, if you believe for whatever reason that you or your child should be circumcised, then passages like Romans 14 gives you the absolute freedom to go in that direction. Make a wise and well-informed decision, but don't trust in circumcision to save you. You have liberty in this matter. So, Get circumcised, don't get circumcised. I believe God is pleased either way. All right, now let's get back to the Word of God. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time... I had not installed the doors in the city gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide, who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to this report, you are to become their king, and have even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, There is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, There is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind, for they were all in trying to intimidate us, saying, They will drop their hands from the work, and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was restricted to his house. And he said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. 
The wall was completed in fifty-two days. On the twenty-fifth day of the month of Elul, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shekiniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehoihanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him, and... Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Matthew chapter 16 verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearances of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. The disciples reached the other shore and they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were discussing that among themselves. We didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said, You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you did not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it that you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also to say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. There was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and come help us! After he'd seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to reach out, to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we went out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against him, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Hey, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from the prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Man, I love Acts chapter 16. And the next time we read this through, which we go through the New Testament twice on our current reading plan, we're going to talk more about Acts 16 because there's so much, just so much in here about baptism, about salvation. And it's one of the, honestly, in my mind, one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. Paul and Silas are beaten within an inch of their life and their response is to glorify God in the midst of it. It's, it's, it's incredible. Praise the Lord for that kind of response. I do want to mention one thing. If your ears perked up a little bit at the beginning of the chapter, When you heard that Paul had Timothy circumcised, you might be scratching your head and wondering about that. Well, here's the thing. It's not a sin to be circumcised. It is a a deadly danger to be circumcised for the purpose of salvation. But in this case, Paul had Timothy circumcised for the purpose of spreading the gospel. In other words, he knew that the Jews would struggle with a gospel preacher bringing the word that was not circumcised. So Timothy was circumcised for the sake of peace, essentially. You might say, whoa, 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 that's compromise. No, it's not. When we're willing to suffer for the sake of peace of somebody else or for the sake of the fruitfulness of the gospel, that's not compromising. That's noble. It's very clear from this passage and many others that Paul did not put this on Timothy in order to, for any salvation related purpose whatsoever. 
This was something that was done, I believe, out of the kind of wisdom that says we want to avoid controversy and we're willing to suffer to do it. Now, did Timothy protest? I don't know. It doesn't sound like he did. Timothy was a faithful friend, companion, follower of Paul, one of the most impacting people in the entire New Testament, wrote uh, tons of books along with Paul, and was a massively fruitful guy. But this happened, and it did not happen for salvation reasons. It happened for other reasons. So I say again, circumcision is not forbidden, and it is not encouraged. It is allowed in every case except the case that you're trusting in it to please God in order to save you. And that's not what happened here. So hope it's been a good and interesting and thought-provoking episode of the podcast for you. You'll find all the show notes you could ever use on BibleReadingPodcast.com, our website. And that's enough talking out of me. We'll be back tomorrow for episode number 17. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Godspeed.